HIV and AIDS doesn't just affect individuals. It also affects families, friends and those carers who work so closely with them. The atmosphere of secrecy and fear around HIV and AIDS in the 80s and 90s often distressed families to breaking point. So how did they survive? They survived this with the greatest difficulty because the, it's not something they can talk about. And that is why the volunteers became very close. And I still get, out of the blue, I'll get a message for someone that I haven't heard from for 10 years. Because you're with the families at a really stressful time. I can remember a situation, a young man, and a friend who hadn't seen him in years and years heard he was dying. And he was an only son. There was a, a son and a daughter. And this guy gave this, this friend, gave him this beautiful apartment to share. He was away a lot. It was a magnificent place. And he, allowed, he had a bedroom for himself and his mother came to care for him. His mother would not come near him. And she would not cross the bedroom door. She would stand there and cry. And here was me, not much younger than her. And here would be me caring for his son. And unfortunately, the young men who were also sharing that care with me used to really resent the mother because they couldn't understand that. These were young men that are now all dead and who couldn't tell their families, but they couldn't understand the mother being there. But that's how bad the fear was. And I can remember the day before he died, he wanted a haircut. And we're in the kitchen and one guy, young gay guy, with the virus, came to do, he was a hairdresser, he came to cut the hair. And I'm holding the guy's head up. He was adamant he wanted to sit in this chair and get his hair cut. I'm holding his head, another one's holding his shoulders, the guy's trying to cut, mum's outside the door crying. Now the young guy died the next day and I was in the bed with him and he asked me to hold him and the minute he died, his mother ran across that bedroom and took, it, took him in his arms. And some of the young men that were there, well, the young carer that was there, there were two of them, but one of them said to me, why couldn't she have done that two minutes earlier? And I said that to him, she's going to have to live with it for the rest of her life. So, I mean, when we thought about the hair cutting, she was crying, we were laughing. Because if you didn't laugh, you would have cried. And that's not what he wanted. So there were a lot of really sad times. Another hard-hitting aspect of the HIV and AIDS epidemic in Australia and the world over was the passive transmission of the virus from mother to child. Pat saw many such children during her years as a carer and has some poignant insight into how they and their families coped. The children take a lot of their attitude from their parents and that's when the character of the parent comes across. There were one, I cared for one little girl whose parents were stressed but they were practical. And they were, she was going to live as normal a life as she could. So they were on a property. She had a 
three-wheeler bike, motorbike things. She'd be all over the place, climbing trees. Just a real tomboy and allowed to live a life. Whereas there was another one that the mother took the attitude that she's entitled to experience growing up in that. So at seven and eight, nine years old, she would have her little bra and panties, she would have her makeup, she'd have her high heels, and she was a miserable little girl because she wasn't a woman. She was a little girl. So a lot of the kids, I can remember at one of the kids' camps sitting with this little boy, little blonde guy, and he was trying to teach me how he, he do, you know what's it? Card game, trying to teach me that, and I was thick as a brick, of course. And he had the virus, and he said to me, I can't die yet, so do you think I could live another couple of years? And I said, I certainly hope so. Why? Because his parents had the virus. They had been drug addicts, were drug addicts, and he said, I can't die before them because who will look after them? So kids, that's when, you know, kids can be so gutsy, and a lot of the, the children that died, the parents, that if they had two parents, the, the marriage didn't survive because there was just so much stress. And, and men grieve different for women and men react different for women. So you have a whole lot of turmoil going on. And when there's other kids involved as well, you have the siblings seeing all this. And it's very common, I think, even with children with cancer or any disease, the the siblings get jealous of the sick child. Ian had it to a degree with his younger brother because Ian would be in and out of hospital. What do you do when a child's in the hospital? You take presents, you buy them things, you go out to... And the other kid feels neglected. So you have all that normal stuff going on and tearing the parents apart as well as the fact that the, the siblings don't understand the full story. So how do they survive? They survive the best they can. Some of them don't. A lot of the children that got HIV, yes, a lot got it mother to daughter or mother to son. A lot got it through transfusion, but a lot of there used to be years where they would say, oh, you're looking after the innocent ones. And the innocent ones were classed as children or people that had it from transfusion. Personally, I don't think there is an innocence. Nobody asks for this virus. So it's, it's not a bit guilty or whatever. So I think with the children... That discrimination doesn't apply. Usually, most people knew what the children had. It wasn't hidden the same. It would be hidden to a degree. You found that with the little girl Evie in, in New South Wales who who had the virus and wanted to get into preschool, couldn't get into preschool, and the family ended up, the mother ended up going to New Zealand. That was very public. There'd be others that would maybe be less public, but the majority of them, it wasn't a deliberately hidden thing. 
uh, had involvement with a family where the mother had died and the father and the aunt was actually caring for the, the children in uh, uh, that partnership and the, um, the little boy that had it and she got hell for the authorities, dogs and everything got involved simply because she was quietly given the kiddies medicine. He didn't tell the school and at that stage nobody was telling the schools or whatever because, you know, it's, people like to blab. End of story. They, they like to, and they like to big note themselves. If they think they've got something, they know something that somebody else doesn't. So at that stage, they didn't tell the schools and she wasn't and she got hell for that. So people all handled it differently. When HIV was first found in the Australian community, the sensitivities and complications surrounding the diagnosis and treatment were enormous, regardless of who you were or how you got it. And that was without taking into account any cultural considerations. How much of that did Pat encounter? Culture plays a big part in this. And I'd need to say that culture applies even to white Australians, because you would get people would say, oh, in Africa, the Africans don't want anybody to know because of the Filipinos or whatever culture, the Asians, because in their country, they would have been ostracised. They would have been put out in a camp somewhere to die. But it, it's like that with the white, white Australians. It was like that as well. And I had a carer who cared for a man who was Tongan. And this man needed to be in hospital. And he wouldn't stay in hospital because when he was in hospital, the family would ask why he was in hospital. His friends would ask why he was in hospital. So he stayed at home with his partner. And it was really funny because the volunteer I had that would go to this man was a little Dutch man who brought, who had raised his own family and he was a lovely man, and he had to travel quite a bit, never drove a car in his life. He had to travel quite a bit by train to go in this shift so that he'd be there at seven in the morning so that the partner could go off to the North Shore to work, and he'd be there all day. And he hit on a marvellous thing. He started learning a bit the culture, and he would take all these different games with him so that they could play games, they could play cards and everything else. And that's the way that man lived his life till he died because he couldn't go to hospital because his family might find out in hospital what he had. Sad, isn't it? According to the UK-based international AIDS information organisation, AVERT, the first recorded case of HIV and AIDS in Australia was in October 1982 with the first death occurring in Melbourne seven months later. The diagnosis of HIV in Australia reached its peak in 1987, with numbers falling respectively in the years thereafter. However, statistics on morbidity give no real insight into the actual death rate and what that might have looked like in the community. Pat puts it into perspective amongst the politics of the time. We lost in one stage, at one stage, for the 1st of June to the end of July, we lost 28 people. Now, this is 28 people 
who we were caring for at home. Not in the hospital, not in the hospice, but caring for at home. Cleaning shit, cleaning vomit, doing what had to be done. And that was in a very short period. And I was on top of that at that time. They were trying to get rid of me because I was a straight, becoming fairly aged woman who was non-positive and I wasn't popular and I was very, I've got a big mouth. It's just part of me. So in among all this, and in actual fact, I was shredding paperwork just recently and I came across letters where a... Um, they were trying, doing things to try and get rid of me. And one of the things they brought up was for a low client list I had at that time. No mention that we'd just lost 28 people. That was 28 young people who died. 28 funerals. And that was a, a joke as well, because when I first got involved, they had come out with this rule. All the funeral parlours were telling you that... The bodies had to be put in a lead coffin. You're looking about $3,000 then. And it was just utter rubbish. And I went to different funeral parlours and found a guy. I said, now, these people that are dying have no money, a very little money, and they certainly can't afford a lead coffin. He said, that's rubbish. It's just the body needs to be bagged. And any sort of infectious disease, tuberculosis, anything, they have to be bagged. So he gave me a guarantee that he would give us an elegant funeral at minimum cost, which he did. And for years, he actually, I gave him the business. I would tell the families if they were involved, the partner or whatever, and this this is it. You can shop around if you want, but that's the way we had to go because you had a lot of funerals. 